Welcome to the EP Edit. This is a podcast dedicated to topics of interest in the field of cardiac electrophysiology. I'm Jody Elrod, Managing Editor of EP Lab Digest. In today's episode, we're featuring a discussion on lead extraction. Dr. Jonathan Salcido, cardiac electrophysiologist with Silicon Valley Cardiology, Palo Alto Medical Foundation, Sutter Health, will be joined by Dr. Robert Schaller, director of the Cardiac Lead Extraction Program at Penn Medicine, to discuss their approach to lead extraction. So let's get started. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonathan Salcedo, cardiac electrophysiologist with Silicon Valley Cardiology, which is a part of Palo Alto Medical Foundation and Sutter Health here in the Bay Area. Specifically, I'm practicing at Sequoia Hospital in Redwood City and Mills Peninsula Medical Center in Burlingame. And I'm Dr. Robert Challer from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm the Director of Cardiac Device Implantation and Extractions, and I've worked here for about eight years now. Thank you for joining me today, Rob. This is uh, really a great opportunity. I've been looking forward to this. I remember when I first joined uh, the Twitter platform in early 2018, your account was one of the first ones I started following because of the great examples of lead extraction uh, difficult cases that you would present. And I, I quickly realized how powerful of a sharing platform it was. I distinctly remember one of my first uh, cases that I, I wanted to ask a question about uh, was actually on simultaneous lead traction, which uh, I had to sort of figure out on my own just because of a difficult case. And uh, you were very gracious and commented and said, you know, this is, this is a great example of this and, you know, stay tuned because we have work coming out on it. And lo and behold, a few months later, you had that great Heart Rhythm Journal publication, which is one of my favorite to reference to when I talk to patients about our technique that I employ here at Sequoia and Mills Peninsula. So one of my first questions I wanted to ask is, you know, how did you come up with this idea and, you know, when did it all start? The lead extraction world is is small indeed. So um, it's it's always nice to bounce questions and cases off of each other. And you were one of the earlier adopters of the technique that we now like to use. So that's always nice to hear. The simultaneous traction strategy came about about 10 years ago now, when I was working with Josh Cooper as a fellow, one of my former mentors, Josh Cooper, who's now the chief of EP at Temple. We used to do cases together and he used to tell me that when he pulled the lead from above, that he thought he was pulling some tissue from the SVC into the extraction sheath if it was in fact attached. And of course, you, you have to pull relatively hard from above in order to establish a rail that is strong enough. So he used to think theoretically, if it was attached, perhaps some of that tissue would go into the lead tip. And even more so if you used an oversized sheath, you would just envelop some of that tissue. And that, that's actually one of the reasons right. why we use typically use an appropriate size uh, sheath. So uh, having... D- performed these procedures with simultaneous traction from below in cases of occlusion and the lead is coming out. So you have to keep the lead in place. We noticed a a couple of things and we noticed that that simultaneous traction tended to uh, stabilize and mitigate some of that traction from above and equilibrate it. And in doing so, uh, it would make the rail or the lead that much stronger And it would also pull the lead away from the SVC and make it more parallel to the SVC. So it seemed like when we were using traction from above and below, only good things happened to that lead. And it seemed to us that it separated from the wall, making SVC injury less likely. And it was that those conversations where um, simultaneous traction was really born. That's awesome. Yeah, that, you know, I I remember 
when in training and, and listening, uh, going through the fellows circuit, I remember Seth Worley would always say with his complex 5e implants, you know, having a strong rail, once you have a strong rail, you could deliver anything anywhere. And that, that kind of resonated with me when I first started doing this technique as well. It just felt like you said that you're guiding the sheath, you know, more towards the RA and saving that lateral wall of the SVC. And certainly there's been times where you, I, I've seen it on fluoro where you just see that lateral wall release, you know, the whole lab just breathes a sigh of relief when you see that. And I don't know, I just feel like intuitively it made sense. But what I found really remarkable about your paper was your use of ice imaging to really define that cleavage plan. I think that really drove home the point to all of, at least to me when I was reading the article, that this is really changing or at least uh, helping that cleavage plane stay in the true track. So, you know, that being said, what tools do you employ when you're doing this technique most often? The tools can depend on the tools you prefer, your expertise in the region you're working in, um, because some of this you ha have to kind of make up as you go. And the whole concept of the enhanced rail strength is definitely is important. And as you said, it's very helpful when putting sheaths in and when taking leads out as well. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention that, you know, this concept of simultaneous traction wasn't necessarily invented only by us but I think it's been invented by a couple of people in, independently, namely Seth Worley has discussed it and, and uh, Roger Friedman in, in Utah. But and we were the first ones to kind of try to gather some data. We knew that the theory was probably sound, but in order to convince ourselves and others, we had to get a little bit of data. And, and that in, included fluoroscopic and ice guidance as well. So when we're doing a procedure, snaring a lead isn't so easy. Our setup is such that we have a protocol where we, we use a lot, uh, many femoral access points, at least four or five. And the left is really reserved for ice as well as the bridge occlusion balloon. We like to leave that side alone. And if we need a pacing quad, we'll put that in the left as well. And then the right side, we really use solely for percutaneous extraction, particularly if we think we're going to need it. Younger patient, older lead, dual coil, ICD. So, uh, and there aren't too many options, as you know, to snare a lead. It can be very frustrating. The, the mm -hmm. tried and true um, option, the one that's been around for a while, the needle's eye snare. That the benefit of the needle's eye snare is that if you're able to grab the lead, it's a very strong tool so that that lead isn't going anywhere. You could pull it as hard as you want. It, it won't slide to one side on that lead. But it can be challenging to grab the lead with a needle size snare. Sometimes it's more helpful when you put it into a deflectible sheath, if you can mm -hmm. find one that size. In the beginning of our project, we quickly moved to a different strategy, which we describe in the paper, which is taking a decapolar deflectible catheter, draping it over the lead, and then from a separate access point or from the same sheath, if you use a big enough sheath, um, we'll snare the tip of that decapolar catheter. So the benefit of that is it's, it's relatively easy to do. The downside is it doesn't give you as strong of a grip on the lead. It can kind of slide from one side to the other. But all in all, that typically is our uh, way to snare a lead. So if you do send it through the same sheath, what size sheath do you use? You don't need to be too big. It just has to take a um, decapolar catheter, which could go into, you know, like a seven French sheath, mm -hmm. and then um, a snare, which I think requires a, a six. So you know, anything in the order of 14, something like that um, gotcha. sounds big, but, you know, we use 16, 20 French sheaths all the time. So right. the issue becomes, uh, do you need deflectability in that sheath? And if you do, it becomes a little bit harder. Do you ever need a deflectable sheath when you're using your decapolar and snare technique? 
We will typically use two separate sheaths. So we'll send a decapolar catheter up pretty much naked through a small sheath. And you're able to drape it over very easily. It's the snaring of that tip of the decapolar that's challenging. And that's what we send through a deflectable sheath. And nine times out of 10, we're able to grab it. That's a really good tip. I personally have used more of the needle eye snare, like you mentioned. It is nice that it's all in one. It's in one, you know, one sheath. And once you grab it, you know, it, it does provide that super strong control over the over the lead. And once you lock it down with like a, a soft gratimostat, it really doesn't slide or move. Yep. Uh, but like you said, it's a learned technique. And there's been, I mean, maybe two or three times where we really just could not get, you know, enough angle on the lead because the lead may have been tacked down a little more laterally. I myself haven't used the decapolar technique quite yet, but I'm, I'm getting my lab set up to, you know, to have some on hand just in case and hearing your, your experience, uh, I think it'll be a good tool to have in our back pocket, but um, definitely like what you mentioned with the um, steerable could definitely help using the curved inner sheath and outer sheath options that come with the needle eye snares. Those have helped a lot to be able to cant it a certain direction and try to interact with the lead somehow. And then usually Usually once you start interacting with the lead, it becomes much easier. I think having both techniques at your disposal is probably the smarter way to approach uh, most of these cases. In terms of, you know, there's a lot of equipment, a lot of hands that probably need to be on these tools. So how, how do you manage all that? Do you do it all yourself or do you have assistants or fellows in your cases? Yeah, every lab is different. Um, you kind of use what you have. I know last time I checked, you were doing these with a, a partner. That's an incredible resource to have an opportunity to, just to have someone there with expertise and to give you some extra confidence another set of eyes that that is so invaluable I, I hope you realize how lucky you are to have that and I, I, maybe I'd love to know more about how you actually make that happen but we don't have the benefit of, of having a second attending but we do have very skilled fellows that are quite dedicated to extraction at University of Pennsylvania we do a ton of complex ablations like you guys do as well. So many of our fellows are steered towards those labs. And there usually are a handful of fellows who are interested in extraction. As you know, if somebody's interested in extraction, they're generally very interested. So they become allies in the lab. We don't have scrub techs or, or nurses that scrub in, but we have uh, one fellow for every case and we'll typically do the case together. So we'll start at the groin and place all of the sheaths and then we'll try to snare the lead. We give the fellow every opportunity to do all portions of this procedure, which is commensurate with their experience, but there certainly is a steep learning curve. After we snare the leads and we place ice, we place the bridge balloon and any other tools that we'll need, what we'll typically do is then cover the entire ephemeral portion of the prep with um, a separate sheet. We affectionately call it a cummerbund sheet, it, a sheet <laughs> because it looks like a, a cummerbund and then you kind of drape it over yeah. The groins. Um, that becomes less important if it's an infected case uh, because you, you don't need yeah. sterility isn't, isn't terribly important in those cases. So we'll generally keep it open. But if it's sterile, um, we're very specific about that setup and we try to keep it as sterile as possible. Once we're done with the groin, we will re-scrub regown and then go to the top. You really never want to touch the groin mm -hmm. um, directly and then go right to the, and then go to the, the pocket. Chest. That's exactly yeah. right. And then we'll work together at the chest. And then when it comes time to utilize simultaneous traction, if we're going to, and we typically do that on dual coil ICD leads or any lead that we think or are actively using um, power on the SVC or, sure. or using aggressive techniques in the SVC, one of us will break off 
come to the bottom and then provide traction from below. And sometimes that's me and sometimes that's our fellow. As long as you're working in tandem and you know what the other person is doing, usually it it goes pretty smoothly. How does that compare to what you guys do? It's very similar in terms of definitely the sterility issue. We actually have a separate table set up on the other side of the patient for the femoral stuff. And we keep syringes, needles, all all on that side. And then a separate table on the uh, patient's left, usually, since most of them are left-sided devices for the pocket and and the locking stylet and stuff like that. Between myself and Amir Stricker, who's my colleague in PAMF, we do all these cases together. We have a block day at both hospitals once a month. And so we alternate, uh, you know, basically whoever's primary patient it is, that uh, physician will do the work with the pocket and preparing the leads while the other assistant physician will start with the groin access. So it's really nice having the, the simultaneous prep because it saves time and, and, you know, everything is by the time the pockets prepared and the leads have been tied up and stuff, the femoral stuff is usually the, the operator at the groin has gotten a hold of one of the leads and is pretty much ready to go. So that really saves time doing it in parallel instead of sequentially. Basically, that's how we also keep sterility. That operator has their own scrub tech, you know, and, and they usually will operate the, the panning and everything with the floral. You know, if we and in terms of which cases we we decided early on to employ this on any case that's any lead, regardless if it's an ICD or pacemaker older than uh, two years, where we suspect that we'll have some kind of binding site in the SVC. It makes it uh, interesting when you have two two or three leads that you're going after. You know, which lead you end up snaring first. Uh, so that's why it also helps to have that second operator there, because once you're done with one lead. They release it, uh, still working on the tip of the lead in the RV, and then they can actually sort of move towards the second lead and get that get that snared up. Well, that's like so a, it, a well-oiled machine that you have in, in your lab. And you're yeah. doing all that snaring really is excellent practice with very, exactly. little, very little downside. The work in parallel that, is really, really... A, that was partially the selfish reason for saying up front, let's just do it for you know any any case where we know we're, we're either using energy or cutting tool because like you said, it's a steep learning curve. But once you got it, I mean, it, you know, both Amir and I are very, we're relatively quick about getting them snared now. And then there's a, a rare instance where the leads tack down laterally where, you know, we, neither of us can get it, but um, usually we can, you know, I'd say over 90% of the time we can get it within five to 10 minutes. Um, it is a nice workflow. And in terms of block times, it, it takes a while, you know, you, as you know, with OR and anesthesia and and working on both physician schedules, it takes time to, to develop that. But once we realized we were getting more referrals, uh, both hospitals were willing to give us a block day. And then now we have it streamlined in our clinic. So, you know, once I book something, it's put on his schedule and we just, we know that those days are are, are dedicated time. So it, it took a while, probably about a year to kind of figure all that out. But once we got it done, it is invaluable, like you said, to have another practitioner's mind to kind of just bounce off ideas or set of eyes. You know, we frequently, you know, we'll stop each other and say, hey, hey, let's just take a second and think about this. So it, I think we've uh, enjoyed that aspect. You know, as you know, it's rare to work with a fellow EP partner or faculty member in the same case, right? You're usually training fellows or you're just practicing on your own. So it has also added that sort of camaraderie and, and team aspect back to the lead extraction program, for, which for us, we think is most important to do it in anyways. Yeah, that's a really enviable workflow. And I, I think another benefit to snaring every ventricular lead is that it, I think it protects the tricuspid valve. That's something I've mm-hmm. become 
much more interested in the last couple of mm-hmm. years is whether we have acute or subacute injury to the valve. And a lot of that is just from pulling and the lead coming out prior to the sheath reaching the valve. And some of that probably has to do with implant technique and whether it's resting on a leaflet mm-hmm. or through a leaflet or through a cord. And I think the only way that I know to protect the valve is to get whatever power sheath you're using through the valve. And if you're buffering all of that traction from above uh, with a snare, that sheath is more likely to get down to the valve. So my guess would be uh, that you're going to have fewer tricuspid valve injuries utilizing that technique. That's a great point. Uh, You know, and that's something all of us, you know, are aware of. And, you know, we always check the TR before and after. And I do agree with your point. Yeah. You know, a lot of times the leaf will just come out from the upper traction. You wonder, oh man, did that (laughs) evolve something or, you know, if it was attached. And that brings me, you know, to the, another question about your equipment. I know you, you love ice and you've, you've mentioned it before on Twitter and, and in your talk. So do you use ice on every case? And are you always looking at the valve or, I mean, how do you use ice during the case? I guess what's your workflow with that? Right. So um, we utilize, we were early adopters of ice during lead extraction cases because we use it for all of our ablation cases, as most people do. So we thought it, it made sense. We didn't exactly have TEE ready to go for every single case. And also, I, I don't particularly like when there's a huge TE probe right in the, in the middle of the screen, generally <laughs> overlying the SVC. So we started to use ice and we learned a lot uh, very quickly. And we now have a, a protocol and I've written a few how-to papers on how to use ice. But basically, we use it for wrist stratification. We're able to see, to some degree, adhesions of the lead to the myocardium, particularly the tricuspid valve and the papillary mm-hmm. muscles of the tricuspid mm-hmm. valve. And that has changed our strategy a couple of times. And we're also able to see if the, if the lead is attached to the SVC sometimes. Pulling on the lead a little bit while you're looking will sometimes give you a little bit of a better idea because you could see the SVC moving with the lead. So that certainly tells you whether the lead is connected or not. If you see the lead freely floating in the SVC, then I don't think you really even need simultaneous traction because you know there's the risk is, is really low. We use it to monitor uh, complications in general. But after our initial survey, while we're at the groin, what we do is we park it in the right atrium to look at the, the tricuspid valve. Since the cummerbund sheet is on top of the ice catheter, generally we'll be able to rotate it left and right with our left hand through the sheath, but oh, you nice. can't really maneuver too much. But right. you can't really look at the SVC in real time because it comes out of plane. So we uh, choose to look at the tricuspid valve. And during the procedure, during varying degrees of traction and pushing the sheath, we sometimes will see traction on bad places like leaflets or cords or papillary wow. muscles. And that will sometimes make us either stop, completely stop what we're doing, change our degree of traction, or even change tools. So I think mm. intraprocedurally, dynamically, the tricuspid valve lends itself to monitoring with the ice catheter. You know, that's something that we will probably adopt from your practice uh, relatively soon. I, I've wanted to pick your brain about that. And that's, that's a great use of the imaging. So does that mean you don't uh, actually employ TEE at all during the cases? You just use ice? I have never used TEE during a elite extraction case. Yeah. I, I think TEE is great. It takes a dedicated person there. And again, it can get in the way. Um, and right. I don't think it, it has not been shown to be able to identify adhesions and it probably doesn't right. image the tricuspid valve as well. But listen, right. you use what you have you use what you're comfortable with to keep the patient safe. But I think ice has some significant advantages. 
Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's a great tip. And I, I, I will definitely look into using that. We have TE on every case. And like you said, but you just can't quite see, I mean, you can't tell which lead you're on or which lead they're seeing. And it's just, uh, you know, I ultimately just have them park it to look at the four chamber, make sure there's nothing growing in terms of an effusion, but right. uh, it doesn't add to the actual process uh, while we're coming down the lead. And like your uh, ice technique does. So I think that's a, that's a great tip. And, you know, if you guys eventually publish data on that, that'd be wonderful stuff to learn from, you know, in terms of the safety and the potential catastrophes that happen in terms of room use and backup with CT surgery. Uh, number one, do you always have OR backup like in the room or in the control room or scrubbed in with you? And two, is this always happening in a hybrid cath lab in the OR, or is it actually, are some cases just done in an EP lab setting? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's wonderful to work in an operating room environment, a hybrid operating room. But as you know, its resources are limited and right. it's difficult to um, get space in, in those labs when other service lines are very busy as well. And as you know, some of our cases are unpredictable and they need to go when right. they, uh, as soon as possible. So we work in the EP lab uh, only, but it's important to realize it's not the room that's going to save a patient's life if needed. It's not the fact that there's a certain ventilation system or a certain bed to lay on. It's the people and it's the preparation. So even though we work in an EP lab, we have every single tool that we would possibly need to rescue a patient. We have a, a lab staff that is well-versed in how to prepare and use these tools, as well as what a complication might look like, specifically an SVC laceration or other vascular right. problem. And of course, we never would ever start a case until we know that we have a cardiothoracic surgeon who knows about the case and is minutes away uh, if we need uh, him or her. And uh, they're wonderful surgeons and they understand lead extraction and the complications that can arise from them. But that being said, we uh, avoidance of complications is, is much more appealing and um, it's, it's not wanting to utilize their services, which kind of spearheaded so many of these techniques that we've tried to develop. So in terms of, God forbid, a, uh, uh, an injury is detected. So your workflow probably would be to, to deploy the bridge balloon, hopefully to buy you time. And then is the surgeon prepared? Is the staff prepared to, to transfer the patient to an OR room in that situation since you're in right. the EP so only? It's, as you know, it's crucially important not to augment the patient's blood pressure when, when you think that you, you might have an injury. So you really have to see how things settle out because you don't want to mask an injury. And like right. you said, the first thing that you should do, just inflate the bridge balloon without even thinking about it. In parallel, what we do in those situations, at least when we practice these drills, is to immediately set up a thoracotomy tray, including the uh, table and tray, including the saw, as we're calling the surgeon. Uh, the goal is to rescue that patient in the exact same room that you're in. I think it's, okay. it can be foolish to move the patient. Right. You have to be ready to operate, stabilize the patient, and then if needed, you can certainly move the patient to the OR. And that's why the bridge balloon has become so important to us. Mm -hmm. It buys you those extra five, 10 minutes. It stops the chest from filling up with all that blood and gives the, your surgeon a chance. 
I've heard from other operators and, and their battles with, you know, OR block time and whether it's safe enough to do this in, in an EP lab. And I think your experience would be, you know, so valuable for them because frequently they're unable to just book cases. They end up sending them out when they probably could have, you know, done it in their own institution. But, uh, you know, if, I think the more of this data that comes out, I know there's a few other centers that are talking about risk stratification scores and things like that to justify doing these in the EP lab. I think that'll help overall uh, many other extractors in the country so that's great to hear your experience rob is, yeah i really really appreciate you being available to meet with me today and loved hearing your insights uh, on a, on this uh, crazy procedure that that you and i love to do now thanks so much for having me it's you're always one of my favorite people to talk to because we have very similar practices so mm -hmm. and it, it's good to know that you know there's some uh, simpatico here we, we understand how difficult these cases are and you know, keep doing the great work that you're doing. No doubt. And for all the listeners, Dr. Schaller is on Twitter. So follow him on there. It's, he has some great pearls of wisdom on there that I've definitely used over the years. So I believe it's at RD Schaller. And 50 watt doc. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. We'd like to thank Dr. Salcedo and Dr. Schaller for taking part in this podcast today. For more information about the EP Edit podcast, please visit eplabdigest.com. Thanks for listening.